welcome everyone. Some of our uh, classmates are on retreat this week with Ajahn Chandako up north. Think of them. Hopefully the mosquitoes aren't too bad. Seems like nice weather. Looks good. We'll have small groups a little later tonight. And uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the impermanence of thoughts. There's a well-known sutta or sutra, uh, sutra. This is from the Pali Canon, where the Buddha talks about the uh, movement of thoughts in relationship to the body. It goes like this. I've heard on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Sabati in Jetta's Grove, Anatta Pindaka's monastery. There he addressed the practitioners. Practitioners, an uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person might grow disenchanted with this body composed of the four great elements, might grow dispassionate toward it, might gain release from it. Why is that? Because the growth and decline, the taking up, the putting down of this body composed of the four great elements are apparent. This, Thus, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person might grow disenchanted, might grow dispassionate, might gain release there. So the Buddha is saying that it's pretty obvious for us that this body isn't reliable. I mean, I think that's the short of what the Buddha just said. Then he goes on, But as for what is called mind, intellect, or consciousness, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person is unable to grow disenchanted with it, unable to grow dispassionate toward it, unable to gain release from it. Why is that? For a long time... This has been relished, appropriated, and grasped by the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person as, this is me, this is myself, this is what I am. Thus, the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person is unable to grow disenchanted with it, unable to grow dispassionate toward it, (coughs) unable to gain release from it. It would be better for the uninstructed, run-of-the-mill person to hold to the body composed of the four great elements rather than the mind as the self. Why is that? Because this body composed of the four great elements is seen standing for a year, two years, three, four, five, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred years or more. But what's called the mind, intellect, consciousness, by day and by night arises as one thing and ceases as another. Just as a monkey swinging through the forest wilderness grabs a branch, Letting go of it, it grabs another branch. Letting go of that, it grabs another one. Letting go of that, it grabs another one. In the same way, what is called mind, intellect, or consciousness by day and by night arises as one thing and ceases as another. So, I'm assuming you recognize this experience of the mind. And it's interesting that uh, it's easier in some ways to see the body as being impersonal more than it is the mind, even though the mind, like the Buddha suggests, has this characteristic of change. It's so, a thought is so ephemeral. But I think the difference, as the Buddha points to, is for a very long time, we have been taking thought as me or mine. And uh, it doesn't really matter that 
upon investigation, it doesn't really hold up. Like, what is it about the mind that's mere mind? But still, the thought that it's mere mind, it, you know, is repeated with great rapidity, and we have this very cultural, I mean, it's not just our own habit, this cultural habit of it being, you know, the same as self, basically. So this is what I thought we could look a little bit, uh, uh, look into a little bit tonight, this identification with thought and the actual experience of mental activity. What is the experience of mental activity? And maybe we can begin just by hearing a few people share in the sit tonight, like what was the experience of mental activity? And uh, you probably remember I encouraged us to just put everything in the mix so that there's not a me sort of watching the mental activity, but this is just this, this present moment. And then part of this present moment is the movement of mental activity. And what is the experience of that? And what comes from observing the changing nature or ephemeral nature or whatever the nature of mental activity is for you, what is the effect of having seen it in a more direct way? So just open it up for a few minutes. Any thoughts about what you saw tonight in the sit? Yeah. Um, it's how I um, very much that my thoughts creep more into the forefront of my mind, or um, be more sort of kind of uh, more in the background, and so that what was more present was just the awareness of being here. Maybe a little louder, Katie. Being here. Um, nature, you know, the feeling of, of being safe and um, protected by just that natural awareness. Yeah. And then even, like, I noticed that when I had that kind of experience, and even getting interested in that sense of safety as a expression of mental activity, too, right? Because if there is a sense of safety, then probably the mind is conceiving that as an idea. It may, be, it may exist also as a feeling, or, but it's some kind of mental activity that too can be noticed. And is that constant, that feeling of safety, or is that evolving, changing, and just to be interested in that. And then even just recognizing that it's mental activity is also part of the change. right? So part of the transformation of the mind is recognizing that the mind is transforming. So this is the, this is the interesting thing about um, observing the mind with mindfulness, is that it has its own effect. It's like uh, that itself is part of what's changing, the transformation of understanding. Understanding also changes depending on how the mind is relating to the present moment how the mind is relating to the mind itself. So, for example, when we're not relating in that mindful way to the mind, we're not mindful of the mind, then the experience will be like this, you know, one way. But when we are mindful of the mind, then it's transformed. And, of course, 
our mindfulness isn't continuous. So then when mindfulness kicks in, there's a transformation in part arising because of the continuity of mindfulness. And then when mindfulness falls away, falls apart, then there's another unfolding change because of now, let's say, ignorance is present. It's just to notice the uh, things aren't set. Our experience as a human being is in no way fixed. Other thoughts from your sit that you'd like to share with the group? Yeah, Steve. I had the uh, uh, impression when I was watching the thoughts was that um, it, it struck me how it was. It reminded me that I didn't remind me, but it, it struck me how it was like being on a roller coaster, going through a forward forth, where all these things were whipping by me. Thoughts I could see thoughts, you know, that I really couldn't recognize the light. Every once in a while. Someone would hit me in the face and it would just, and it would kind of sit with me. And then other things would just kind of go by and eventually drop away. Yeah. So, did you notice in that, because it's an interesting experience, it's almost like when, when there's enough continuity of mindfulness, it's almost, and this isn't exactly right, but it's almost as if the mind doesn't care if they're just fragments of thoughts. It's like, the, the rapidity or the movement of mental activity is such that it's just it's like a big river and some thoughts are more fully formed and others aren't even what you'd call a thought. They're just little fragments. It's just so interesting because normally um, when we're not so mindful, it's like the experience of mental activity is much more, not always of course, but it's like more reasonable and more easily identified as self. But when we're more, when the attention is more relaxed, more mindful, then we see that the movement of mentation, you know, mental, uh, mental activity, it's like, you, it's just easier not to grasp it or take it personally because it isn't personal. You know, it's just, it's, it has a sense of being wild. Not wild always in a messy way or intense way, but unformed. And uh, it's sort of interesting. Other experiences? You're leaking, Robin. <laughs> well, you know, I'm really relieved you said that about thought fragments. Because I really thought I was crazy. I mean, a t- I know that all the time. Yeah. Maybe I am crazy, but I guess I didn't know everybody else experienced that too. And so, in a perverse sort of way, I did identify with fragments and with fear that yeah. maybe there's something wrong. Yeah, actually, I think it's a generally, you know, a, a sign of experience in meditation when we can observe the body, the sort of, the body and the mind in a more natural way, not so dressed up by, you know, other patterns of the mind that basically is making experience presentable 
to the view that the mind has, the expectations that the mind has. But when mindfulness is more continuous and we've had a lot of practice of opening and it's sort of like too exhausting to dress it up. The mind recognizes how exhausting it is to make experience fit one's expectations. So it doesn't so much anymore. And then you can get that experience of the movement of sensation in the body or the movement of mental activity in a way that doesn't make sense <clears throat> in the way that we might expect our mind to be presenting itself or the body to presenting, be presenting itself. And that's actually a good sign because what that does is it undermines um, attachment because we don't recognize it as self. You know, why would I be doing that? Yeah, you know, that's right. I must be crazy. Because why would my mind be doing this? Did you ever touch him? Well, almost just the opposite with um, these fleeting thoughts, things that come and go. Uh, I tend to take that for granted and um, find much more of a sense of self in my physical body. Because at least I can recognize sort of boundaries there. Because I think... Uh, I don't see where the mind starts and finishes. Only at those times when we're thinking about ourselves, we're trying to protect ourselves as an individual. But I think that's not most of the time for most of us. Um, when nothing's going on, and meditation is wonderful for that, just that awareness of everything around us and what's going on, I don't think there is any bounded mind in that. I think that's great. But so much of the time, we're connecting with other people, communicating with other people, trying to say things to them, or I write things, internet, that's what I do during the day, and people are getting back to me, and I have a sense of our selves are very interspersed, and, um, and it takes a lot of work to find some coherence in an individual yeah. Thanks, Jim. Maybe time for one or two more. Yeah, Alexis. This may be echoing what you were saying. My sense was uh, uh, of not being able to make sense or take control of the thoughts. Just um, watching whatever they did. This is the interesting thing. There's no way we can be interested and mindful of the mind without a powerful transformation happening because uh, it's just so conducive to insight to be mindful of the mind. And uh, so it is. It, the transformation happens very quick. When there, whenever there is some balanced, continuous attention to the activity of the mind, Wisdom can't help but arise because we're so normally so deluded by the activity of the mind 
that uh, whenever we pay attention to it, that delusion gets uprooted very quickly. So I, I, you know, it's very encouraged. You know, mindfulness of mind is very encouraged, and and then that mindfulness of the mind combined with this interest in interest in, in impermanence, the changing nature of the mind, um, really helps. That it kind of gives a lens, because then wherever the mind reestablishes itself as the one observing the mind, which is I, I notice that a lot in my sit, you know. But immediately then, I could get interested in the change of that. I didn't have to be for or against, you know, like this thought versus that thought. Because anything was fine to sort of reveal the changing nature of the mind, the changing nature of thought. And that's all we need to do. We just have to get interested in the changing nature of it. It's really poignant for us, this... uh, Impermanence on any level, whether we're seeing it out there in terms of people coming and going, or days coming and going, decades coming and going, or we're just observing it in this more microscopic sense of the sensations of the body or the thoughts, the fragments of thoughts even coming and going. It's kind of sobering and poignant to the heart, the ephemeral nature, and actually. It's a nice feedback loop because it makes us more interested. When, like, as we see things are so ephemeral and precious, it's, you would think, or maybe superficially think, that we wouldn't care, but actually, I think it's just the opposite. We care all the more about the moment when it's seen more clearly as it is, as being ephemeral. It's like it's all we have, and it's almost nothing. But it is all we have. So even from this relative self-point of view, it draws us in to life. In the same way, we can be quite callous and distant, disconnected, when we're not aware of the changing nature, the ephemeral nature of existence. I don't know which book. Oh, I think it was in The Wisdom of No Escape, this book by Pema Children. She talks about a Navajo custom where the parents would teach their kids, I mean, maybe they believed that, I'm not sure, but that the son takes birth every morning and dies every evening. And uh, sort of like, well, uh, part of that story that they had in their culture is you know, at least in terms of what they told their kids is, you know, the sun is living its life to bring light for you today. So don't don't let the sun, the sun's light be a waste. You know, do something really good today. And so, it's just that, you know, all the different ways we can use impermanence, and especially the impermanence of the mind, to draw us in. It's like, because... The whole path that the the Buddha laid out is this path of investigation. And the real barrier is interest, not having enough interest, being distracted, not thinking there's something to wake up to. So if we can catch a whiff of this flow of the mind, the ephemeral nature of the mind, we get really interested. Because it really begs the question, you know, it's hard to sum it up, but the question is something like, well, what is this? What is this existence? 
what is here. And another way of asking that question is like, what's dependable? Is there a refuge here? And we have to ask that question in a very deep, authentic way. Not in a way like we think we know, like we pull out what we were told as a kid, you know, that there's this guy with big gray beard in the sky who mostly loves us, except if we're bad, and then is vindictive or something, <laughs> or get even with us. So to, um, to have a sense of the fragility of the mind and like what Robin was bringing up, like even the, having the sense of the mind, because normally we, uh, through our condition, our conditioning, our cultural conditioning, we just assume, impose that the mind, the activity of the mind makes sense. It's like we're really dependent on that. This is why dementia and uh, people with mental illness or our own problems with mental health are it's so frightening for us because we really de- we think we're really dependent on the meaning, the sense, the sensibility of our mental activity. And when we're in a more mindful, relaxed, clear way, we see that the mind is all over the place. You know, we filter out a lot of the insanity of the mind and a lot of the just jumble of the mind. And we only highlight, you know, kind of moments of clarity, even if our clarity is sort of not so clear or off, but at least it's sort of like it's convincing, convincing enough. Yeah. But it just to notice that. So as we take this up as a training for a while now to be mindful of the mind, mindful of the changing, transforming nature of the mind, and uh, and basically like the... Uh, what I suggested at the beginning of the sit to see that this whole thing is mine, right? This is just this present moment is the activity of the mind. It's not that there isn't a body here, but the body's being known by the mind. It's being interpreted by the mind, and the experience of the body now is being compared to its idea of the, <coughs> the body previously, or what its idea of what it wants the body to be. So there's just so much about this that is the mind. It's all happening here in the mind, being known here in the mind. And so this present moment of mind is transforming. And to see this sort of churning and uh, spewing and moving, swirling activity of mind, and to let the reality transform our experience. One of my favorite little lines. This is from a, a poem, Zen poem written a while back by Zen nun. Let's see, I have it here somewhere. Sixty-six times have these eyes beheld the changing scenes of autumn. I have said enough about moonlight. Ask me no more. Only listen to the voice of pines and cedars when no wind stirs. And I really see that as an invitation to this uh, kind of not 
not immediately getting caught or confused by the content of our mental activity, but really wanting to be in this, I think purity is not a bad word in the sense that purity being the freedom from the concepts. So as we're opening to the mind, to really see it as an expression of nature and uh, a really um, transforming, it's like a, you know, like an exploration of a new land. We ended up in a new place we had never been before. And to see the mind in that way, kind of unpack it in that way. I forget where I saw this, but, you know, this, when we're observing the mind, you know, sometimes the mind, it just, it just has this, with the, with the, you know, insert, insert of delusion, it has this way of coalescing around meaning. So I'm sure you noticed I did in my sit tonight when we were sitting together during the guided sit. I noticed how, like, the mind could come together in meaning that, and so all of a sudden there was this meaning, I'm here observing my thought, or I'm here feeling really settled. And, and it was like a pretty picture, all wrapped up, tied up nicely. It all made sense. And so we want to learn to recognize those moments as we're observing the mind, where it all makes sense. And that is one experience of the mind, you know, what we could call the ordinary mind or the deluded mind. Because things only make sense when the mind is sort of uh, not seeing something, basically. So some mental activity has arisen, the mind is identified with that, and in, in a sense it's built a sense of self around it. That, and it has some temporary stability, which it likes, because it's learned to see that as safety, as ephemeral as it is. So we see that, and then to see the dissolution, and you see we have to change our value system because now we value that stability. Okay, I finally know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, this makes sense. I know what I'm seeing. And then to, uh, you know, one way or another, with some meditation move, with some mindfulness move, we include what we haven't been including, we see with mindfulness what we were blind to a moment ago, and the whole meaning thing then falls apart because it begins to um, present itself as nature, which is always transforming and moving. And uh, then that will be, you know, that will naturally have an unpleasant flavor to it because. Remember, pleasantness and unpleasantness isn't an absolute thing. It arises, in a sense, uh, based on the conditioned self. You know, things are unpleasant to me. Like, what is unpleasantness without a self? Or pleasantness without a self? Is it like a related question is, what is pain when there's nobody taking it personally? And it's almost like, it's not right to say, well, there's no pain there. That, that's, that's too simplistic. But it's not the same. 
it gets transformed. Just like when there's really a self there, then pain is like really not good. And when the self is a little less strongly formed, well, pain is different. It's not as, not as important, not as relevant. Same with pleasantness. So this is the same thing with uh, the play of the mind. And when it congeals and there's meaning, it, the, the point is not to immediately value that or to get confused by the value of it's pleasant, it's stable, it's good. But to just maintain the interest in the mind. And part of the mindfulness is this wisdom or this investigative quality that's always interested in what's not being seen or what's not being included and including that, and letting, in a sense, the mind, allowing the mind to dissolve or to become unformed or uh, uncongealed, and so that the meaning falls apart. When we're learning to inhabit the states, like not having any set meaning is itself meaningful. It's like a teacher for us (coughs) to inhabit that space. So uh, somewhere along the line, I heard uh, you know how in physics that different, depending on the way of observing, uh, something could be seen as a particle or particles, or something could be seen as waves, and it's just a matter of how you look at it. And this is something I think related to how we look at the mind. Sometimes the mind will seem like particles, and sometimes like waves. Sometimes we'll like the mind will be under the influence of continuity, continuity makes everything make sense. And then sometimes the mind won't be, will see through the continuity, and things won't make sense. But that's not, that's good. It's like just because things don't make sense doesn't mean we've done something wrong or we've broken it. You know, we got to get back to things making sense. Or even, even we'll use dharma, dharma ideas. Okay, let's make sense of this. And that's a, there's nothing that we can do to stop that. We will do that. But it's more about learning to be relaxed with things not making sense. So remember, we're interested in the mind as it actually is. We're not interested in making sense of the mind, the activity of the mind. We just want the truth to be revealed. You know, and so this really helps us too, like the importance of relaxation, especially in mindfulness of the mind. The effort required for mindfulness of the mind is very, very light. It's, it's just this little thread of maintaining interest. Because there isn't anything else we have to do. And generally, if we're trying to do something to be mindful of the mind, we're the whole, you know, the whole facade of creating as somebody who's trying to do, it all comes in. So to really uh, relax. And this is why generally people first start catching moments of mindfulness of mind just on the fringes, like being caught up in a thought, and then you, you notice it, and then just in that transition of having been really identified with some mental activity, and the heart of the mind is putting it down. And just in that moment, for an instant, you can have a moment of mindfulness of the mind before the 
mind re-coalesces around some meaning. And that's okay, just to sort of begin to appreciate the unformed moments. Robert, did you have a comment or a oh, question? Yeah. Uh, before I left to come here, I was in the kind of aversive state. And um, so I rushed to get here. When I got here, it was really important for me to sit quietly with myself even before you got here. And dispel or let go of all that was churning. And that was very good. I, I, uh, a few people like we did, and uh, then I felt more at peace. But I, there is nonetheless some, some disturbance beneath that. I was trying to remember rain. Uh, recognize. Recognize. Yeah. Recognize. Accept. Investigate or interest. Mm-hmm. And not attack. Yeah. Yeah. We have every incentive to be interested in the mind because it just the the need for meaning, the addiction or identification with mental activity, really pushes this heart around, throws this heart around. We 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 are literally enslaved because of the heart's perceived need for meaning. Yeah, and the the real hook or the real trick is to get interested in this continuity. Because we need continuity. It's how our mind makes sense and it allows us to connect with each other because as I work with continuity and make sense of my life, then I can use language and share it and we can find common ground, like common meaning together. So there's really a place for that. But we want to see continuity as a tool, like to be able to pick it up, and using the concept of continuity kind of makes sense, form meaning, and then to let it die. And that would be like a good exercise uh, over the next couple weeks to let meaning form and die over and over again. So we might have an opinion that forms about, we see something on the street as we're driving to work, and meaning forms, and we see that blossoming where the mind is really amazing. I don't know even hard to imagine how the mind, the thinking mind and language, how it's able to, in some way, like through cognitive activity, it paints a, a very complete picture. That meaning, you know, where, and it, and it, it can include so many different perceptions, you know, organize all the, these perceptions, so they get lined up in a way that they work together to make this painting that allows us to, in a sense, comprehend something and then maybe to engage with other people around that that meaning that the mind has created. But then to be just as interested as we were in that formation in the dissolution. Like uh, teachers, you know, will say, you know, tag on, maybe not so, who knows. But some little ingredients so that to support and encourage the dissolution, the falling apart of meaning. And we might have an idea, like we do something really stupid, and, you know, it might be appropriate for there to be some thought, oh God, I've got to get my act together. And then, but to then continue to be mindful until we see the, like, how that was just 
one thought that had some resonance, whatever resonance it had in that moment, you know, like, as that picture formed, you know, it had some resonance. It's just like when we have a Dharma thought. Like, remember when you first heard some of these teachings? I do. And when I would think about some of those thoughts, like, there is suffering, excuse me, or things are impermanent. That thought, you know, and then the mind comprehends that thought. It it collects all of its perceptions, you know, and and uses it. And it's like, oh, that that thought, that meaning, that constructed meaning, is so useful. It's like I can use so many more of the pieces of the puzzle with that meaning than I could with other kinds of meaning that I was trying to organize my life around. But that we even Dharma ideas we don't want to hold to. We want to let them fall apart. So that we really, that the meaning that we live with is something that we see as being moment to moment, like we can create it and we can let it go. I remember, I mean, I was a little obnoxious in college, but part of it wasn't being obnoxious. Part of it was that for whatever reason, you know, in all those kind of discussions you have when you're in college late at night about the meaning of things and truth and politics and things like that. It's like, I really enjoy, I still enjoy to this day, like in any situation, just letting the meaning come right out of the moment. It's like, I don't care what I thought a day ago or an hour ago. It's like, let the construction come right here. And then if new information comes, you know, somebody says something counter to my idea, you know, I immediately, I have no qualms about totally incorporating what they said, even if it contradicted my previous idea, and then creating new meaning. And it used to infuriate people. <laughs> Maybe it still does. But you could ask when. <laughs> but I think that's kind of where we go with this conceptualizing part of the mind, just to let it construct meaning and to let it put it down. Yeah, Mary. That's a really, that's a perfect or wonderful example for us all to consider. And we're going to do small groups, and that could be something to share in the small groups. But And we're, we can pick this up next week, because we need to end here. But my understanding is it is contingent. And if we could actually track kind of the mental activity around a lover, a loved one, you know, we would see that there was this construction of love, there was this construction of love, there was this construction of hate, there was this construction of love, that there are these episodic experiences of meaning, the meaning I hold about this person, and that it's moment by moment, and it's not always the same. It may have some continuity or consistency that usually, when I'm forming meaning around this person, there is this idea of I love you, but not always. And sometimes it's this way, and sometimes it's a little that way. But it doesn't matter whether you constructed it yesterday. The question is, what, do you, what is the mind constructing now around this person, or in terms of this person? But are you 
constructing it is not in my It's not what? Even the act of constructing it is not a mindful practice. Well, I think we can. The idea is not to not construct it. The idea is to be aware of what that is when that's happening. So that we're seeing it as a relative activity of the mind. We're not completely seduced by it. We're aware of it. We're aware of the functionality of the meaning that the mind is creating, the thinking mind is creating, but we're not confused by it and taking it personally. And it, it is a little, it takes a special handling, especially around our love, our, our loved ones. You know, it's so interesting being around my family and my dad a lot, uh, now that he's, um, in a real medical crisis and, uh, just to, you know, just, you can't like turn mindfulness off and just to see the, to sort of be mindful of myself, of my mind, what it's creating, what it's saying, and being supportive and being loving, but being aware of it. Because it's a, initially it's a little disconcerting to see how we create, how we act out our loving relationships with another. Because we're not used to being mindful of that. And when we're mindful of it, it seems a little constructed. Like, like this being the loving and devoted son is something that the mind is putting together in that moment. But it is doing that. But that doesn't actually make it any less than what it is. But initially it could feel a little weird to see that in our relationships. Like just to see that now I'm the angry spouse, or I'm now I'm the loving spouse, or now I'm the indifferent spouse. To see these different constructions as just that, as just constructions. Reminds me, wasn't there a recent movie, like 40 First Dates or something, where some guy is dating a woman who has amnesia and he goes out with her 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, they have a lot of Sounds like the Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.